0: Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Acts. First, we're going to get to Galatians, but I'm going to ask you to open to Acts chapter 10. There's a purpose why we're going to start in Acts this morning and then eventually get to the book of Galatians. Many of you have probably heard about lemmings, the furry little rodents that follow each other to their deaths and jump off of a cliff into the water below. This is a phenomenon used to describe the dangers of blindly following the crowd. What happens when you blindly follow the crowd? uh, You you end up going off a cliff. Now, here's the story about lemmings in the history. This is actually a myth. The idea of lemmings uh, committing mass suicide by jumping off a cliff was actually popularized in a Walt Disney documentary from 1958 called White Wilderness. And here's what happened. To make for good cinema, to make for good film, the film directors actually manually forced all the lemmings off the cliff to make it look like they were following each other. And it won an Academy Award for Best Documentary, The Staged Mass Suicide. Now, no matter what you think about lemmings, they've become a cultural phenomenon for groupthink, following the crowd, going the way of everybody else, going off the ledge. Many of us can probably think of a time when we gave in to peer pressure. We followed the crowd. And it didn't work out well for us. It got us into trouble. It may have even ruined our testimony. Back when I was in my 20s, I worked for a company that I had to travel every week to Phoenix. I lived in Colorado Springs at the time. I had to travel every week to Phoenix. But the corporate headquarters were in Chicago. And so when I went back to my first training in Chicago, I got inundated into the culture of this company all the people that worked there were their mid-20s, mid to early 20s. And so it kind of had a party culture. So the very first time I, I showed up at the, the bar is where we were supposed to meet. So um, we showed up at the bar. My supervisor said, here's the way it works at this company. Everybody parties. Everybody gets drunk. Everybody sleeps around. Just deal with it. And I said, okay, this is interesting. So um, I, I'm there, and, and this this other woman starts to flirt with me, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm married at the time to Dawn, and she's pregnant with Aiden, and so I leave very quickly. I get in my rental car. I go back to my hotel. I said, I'm not going to play this game. Well, the next day, the, another young woman who was to uh, train me, she was a, maybe a few years older than me. I think I was probably in my mid-20s. She was probably late 20s. She said, I noticed you left last night at the bar and didn't hang around. I what happened? And I told her, I said, listen, you need to understand something. I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm happily married, and I know this may be the culture of the company, but that's just not something I want to participate in. And she began weeping when I told her that. And I said, what's, what's going on here? She said, you don't understand. She's like, I grew up in church, I grew up going to youth group, I grew up, you know, following Jesus. And now I'm a young single woman, and I just can't say no to peer pressure. I admire you so much for being able to say, no, I just can't do it. And so I was able to encourage her and pray with her uh, the rest of the time that I was there for that training. Now, why do I bring up peer pressure? Lemmings following the crowd. Well, it's a major theme of this passage of Scripture this morning. How do you deal with peer pressure? Now, before we begin in Galatians, I want us to look at Acts, because the book of Acts sets the stage for understanding how Peter behaves in the book of Galatians. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 9 through 16. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 9. This is somewhat of a familiar story in the book of Acts, but it's a watershed moment for Peter. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. This is an object lesson that Peter receives with the sheet coming down from heaven, all types of unclean animals. God says, eat these unclean animals. Peter says, no way, I've never eaten unclean animals. And God says, what I've made clean, don't call unclean. This is Peter's way of God showing him that he must take the gospel to the unclean Gentiles, the non-Jews. And that's what happens You end up finding out the rest of the story that Peter goes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile. Peter begins to share the gospel with him. So go down to verse 34 of Acts chapter 10. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Some of your translations may say favoritism. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter says, listen, Cornelius, I'm coming to you as a Gentile, as a non-Jew, because I've been given this object lesson in the sheet coming down from heaven that it's no longer about kosher dietary laws. It's no longer about circumcision. It's no longer all of these Old Testament laws. What's important now is the gospel, and God shows no favoritism. The gospel goes to Jew. The gospel goes to Gentile. We're all saved by grace. There's equal footing at the base of the cross. And It's a watershed moment in Peter's life because Cornelius becomes really the first popular Gentile convert in the book of Acts. But that causes a problem. Let's pick up in chapter 11. What happens in chapter 11? Peter goes back to Jerusalem, and he tells the church what happened, how he went into the home of an uncircumcised gentile, how he shared the gospel with the gentile, how Cornelius got saved and his family by the gospel. What happens? Acts chapter 11 verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter received some heat from this circumcision party, the Judaizers, the men we've been seeing that have been causing trouble all along in the book of Galatians. And they say, Peter, how dare you go into the home of an uncircumcised Gentile? And Peter begins to share with them about the dream, about the sheet, about the gospel going to the Gentiles. And what does the church conclude about the gospel going to the Gentiles? Well, you you find out the end of the story. Go down to Acts chapter 11. Look at verses 17 and 18. Acts chapter 11, 17 and 18. If then God gave the same gift to them that's the Gentiles, as he gave to us, the Jews, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This was a watershed moment for Peter. He dramatically came to the conclusion through the sheet coming down from heaven, through the conversion of Cornelius, that the gospel shatters all types of ethnic barriers, all types of racial barriers, all types of barriers come crashing down because the gospel is not just for the Jewish people, it's also for the Gentiles. Peter had worked through that situation. Peter had worked through that theology. Peter had come to that conclusion, the gospel's for the Gentiles as much as it is for the Jews. It's not about circumcision. It's not about dietary kosher laws. It's not about all these types of things that a person attempts to do to become a Jew in order to get saved. It's by grace alone. And as we saw last week, Peter gives the right hand of fellowship to Paul, and they agree upon this. That's what we picked up last week. Now, let's, with that as a background, Peter having worked through all of this issue, Jew, Gentile, eating together, going into a Gentile's house, all of this Peter had worked through, theologically. But sometimes you can work through something theologically and not put it into practice practically. So let's go to Galatians chapter 2, and let's see what happens with Peter and with Paul. Galatians chapter 2, picking up in verse 11. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Now remember, when, when Paul uses the word Cephas, it's the same word as Peter. So when you see Cephas in your Bible, that's just the Greek term for Peter. Okay, So I'm going to use the word interchangeably to, to help us understand it. So verse 11, But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, what's the the main point of this passage of Scripture? What's the main teaching? What's going on? Here it is in a nutshell. Peer pressure can sometimes lead you to compromise on the truth of the gospel. Peer pressure. This whole story is about peer pressure and how it leads Peter to compromise on the gospel. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this from two vantage points, okay? There's two main characters in this story. There's Peter, there's Paul. Let's first look at Peter. Let's look at Peter's fearful compromise. Peter's fearful compromise. Now, last week, The scene took place in Jerusalem. Paul took a trip to Jerusalem. He explained to them about what he had done. They they received the right hand of fellowship. Now the scene shifts back to Antioch. Verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now what's the importance of Antioch? Antioch is the first non-Jewish church in the Bible. The church started on the day of Pentecost. It was its home base of operation. But then as persecution spread and the gospel spread, the first main church that we have in the book of of Acts that's non-Jewish is Antioch. It was actually the church that sent Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey. As a matter of fact, in Acts 11.26 and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So this is a church... In a city that's got about 65,000 Jewish people. So you have a church that you have Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. Jews and Gentiles being in each other's homes together. Celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Fellowshiping with one another. All those barriers came crashing down. Nobody cared about any of those barriers. They were living together as Jew and Gentile, as one people of God, as the church. And that's the beauty of the church. That church in Antioch is beautiful because it shows that people can come from different socioeconomic, different ethnic, different racial, all different backgrounds can come together, and all those barriers come crashing down when you come together as believers in Christ. And that was what was going on in Antioch. But what happened? These men from Jerusalem, the circumcision party, they show up to Antioch. They come in to check things out to see what was going on. And what do they find out? Peter is eating with the Gentiles. He drew back. He separated himself. Now, what was the big deal about eating a meal with a Gentile? Why would a Jew not eat a meal with a Gentile? Well, number one, If you were a good Jew, you could not go into the house of a Gentile. If you went into the house of a Gentile, you would be unclean, ceremonially. So you wouldn't even enter their house. Number two, you dare not eat a meal with them because eating a meal symbolizes friendship, fellowship. And so to a Jewish person, going into the house of a Gentile is the worst thing you could do. You're defiling yourself. And Peter had worked through that, hadn't he? He went into Cornelius' house. For years, Peter had been eating Jew, Gentile, the church in Antioch. Nobody cared. They went into each other's homes. All those, those barriers came crashing down. But yet this one day, when these Judaizers, when the circumcision party show up, look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he did what? He drew back. that's like a that's a military word a military retreat he drew back he got scared he separated himself because he was fearful look at what it says there he was fearing the circumcision party and notice how peter's acting verse 13 the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. It's the key word here is fear and hypocrisy. Peter's acting hypocritically. That word hypocrite, hypocrisy, that word that's used there comes from the ancient world of drama or from plays. Back in those Greek plays, they would wear masks. It was to play act to put on a mask, to act hypocritically, to not act with integrity, to put, on, to put on an act. And that's what Peter's doing here. Peter's putting on an act. Why is he putting on an act? He's worked through the theology. He knows that there's nothing, there's no big deal about eating with the Gentile. He's settled that issue. He knows it in his head. He knows it in his heart. He's settled that conviction. But what's he doing? He's acting in a way that betrays his conviction he's being a hypocrite he's not living up to in practical ways what he believes he has the correct theology this is not an honest mistake by peter this is a conscious decision for peter to separate himself because he feared this group it was peer pressure peer pressure plain and simple let's talk about peer pressure for a moment a lot of times when you hear somebody say peer pressure, we automatically think about teenagers. Teenagers struggle with peer pressure. There's a Greek word for that. You want to know what it is? It's called baloney. Okay, adults deal with peer pressure just as much as teenagers. Peer pressure. Whether it's the temptation to engage in gossip at the workplace, because that's just what everybody does. There's a, I tell you what, gossip's one of those things that, man, when peer pressure hits, it's hard to go against the tide of gossip. Or what about foul language or inappropriate joking or, or telling dirty jokes? When the peer pressure comes, you don't want to be the only one not laughing. Or how about cutting corners at work and, and, and maybe cheating on your time because, after all, everybody else does it. Or maybe I'm just telling a little white lie. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody else is doing it. You see, none of us is immune to p- peer pressure. By definition, let me just tell you what peer pressure is. Here, here's a basic definition. You fear man more than you fear God. You fear other people's opinions. You fear other people's attitudes toward you. You fear what other people are going to say or do about you more than you fear God. And listen to what the Bible says about that. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You see, if you fear man, if you give into the peer pressure, it lays a snare. A snare is something that's going to trap you up. If you fall into peer pressure, it's going to trap you up. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You have two choices. Are you going to fear man and fall into a trap, or are you going to trust in the Lord? Peer pressure, fearing man. John chapter 12 42 through 43, we find out about the Pharisees, some of these Jewish religious leaders. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, about Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There were some religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, that were believing in Jesus, but they didn't want to go public with it because they feared being kicked out of the synagogue. They feared the pressure of the other group because they loved the glory that comes from man. They loved the opinion of man. They loved the praise of man, the attitudes of men towards them. they feared men more than they feared God. Now, what was said about Jesus when these people came to Jesus in Matthew twenty-two sixteen. 16? They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, they're talking to Jesus. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Jesus didn't care about anyone's opinion. Jesus was not swayed by peer pressure. Jesus was not swayed by the crowd. Jesus stood his ground and said, The only thing I care about is God's opinion." So peer pressure is you can fear man or you can fear God. Which one are you going to do? And here's what Peter did. It was a compromise because he feared man. That's Peter. Peter's fearful compromise. He acted hypocritically. He feared man. He drew back. Let's look at Paul's vantage point. If Peter had a fearful compromise, Paul has a bold confrontation. Paul's bold confrontation, okay? I was telling Don the other day, I would have loved to have heard this conversation between Peter and Paul. It was public, okay? It was a public confrontation. This was not behind closed doors. Now, I'm sure that Paul followed Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 and maybe had gone to, to Peter privately. But here's the thing. Why is this a public rebuke? Because it's a public sin. Peter's leading astray the Jews. Peter's leading astray Barnabas. The impact of Peter's sin is not a private little sin over here in the corner. It's a public sin that's causing confusion, that's causing frustration. It was leading people astray, even Barnabas. Think about how that would have hurt Paul to see Barnabas even being led astray. So Paul has to address it publicly because it's a public sin that's leading many people astray. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. That's what Paul had to do here. I'm going to have to rebuke Peter in the the presence of all so the rest stand in fear. There's no confusion. Now, this requires great wisdom. Great wisdom. I'm not encouraging you to go publicly rebuke people and call them down publicly. Jesus gives us some instructions about how to go about doing this. In Matthew chapter 18... 15 through 17, Jesus gives us the steps. How do you confront somebody who's in sin? Okay, here's what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Go to the person alone. Go to the person alone. Confront that person in private, maybe numerous times. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he listens to you, no harm, no foul. He repents, you've gained a brother. If that doesn't work, Jesus says, let's take it a second step. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidences of two or three witnesses. Okay, if you keep going to a person privately, there's no change, there's no repentance, take two or three others along to make sure that it's just not a personal vendetta. Make sure that you you take some more with you. Okay, if he doesn't listen to you, he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the entire church. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Always err on the side of private confrontation. Privately confront somebody in their sin. Sometimes, maybe in very rare cases, you may have to publicly confront somebody. In this situation, you've got two apostles, Peter and Paul. The sin is public The sin is confusing, and I've never known Paul to back down from a confrontation. So we'll give Paul a pass here and say, Paul just confronted. There are times that you may have to do that. It takes great wisdom. But I want you to pay attention to how. How does Paul address it? Very, very interesting how Paul addresses this. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Your translation may say something like it was not in step, it was not walking. It's the Greek word orthopedia. Anybody ever been to the orthodontist? What does an orthodontist do? Straightens your teeth. Orthopedic surgery, what does it do? Straightens your feet. What Paul here is saying is, Peter, you are leading the rest of these people to walk crookedly in relationship to the gospel. You're not walking a straight line in regards to the gospel, it's out of alignment with the gospel. It's out of step with the gospel. It's not even straight. It's a crooked, you're, you're preaching a crooked gospel, Peter, by your actions. And Paul says, you're being the, the height of a hypocrite. Verse 14. Listen, Peter, all these years, you've been living like a Gentile. You've been going into Gentiles' homes. You went into Cornelius' homes. This church in Antioch has had some beautiful fellowship. Nobody's cared about Jew-Gentile relationships. But all of a sudden now, you are making these Gentiles have to act like Jews. You're treating them as second-class citizens. Peter, you're being legalistic. You're being hypocritical. And you are sending a clear message to these Gentiles that they are inferior. And you're an apostle. It's a confusing message, Peter. It's not in line with the gospel. Because, Peter, didn't you just come to the conclusion back in the book of Acts? What, did, what came out of your mouth, Peter, when you told the church? God does not show what? favoritism. God does not show favoritism. God does not show partiality. That came out of your mouth, Peter, back in Acts. You've settled that issue. You have the theological conviction in your head, but it has not worked itself out into the practical way that you act. You are not acting in accordance with the gospel. You're not welcoming others into the family. Think about welcoming here for a moment. What does the gospel say? God has welcomed you into his family. God has taken you into his family. You were an outsider. You were a sinner. God took you in and welcomed you. How can you who have been welcomed, you who have been forgiven, you who have been graced, then turn around and not do the same thing to somebody else whom God has welcomed and God has saved? It's the height of hypocrisy. You know, that was Jesus was accused of this. Luke 15, 1 through 2. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Jesus does that. He receives us. He takes us in. He welcomes us. Why would we not extend the same courtesy to those whom Christ has died for? Romans fifteen seven. Therefore, welcome. Some translations say accept. Welcome, accept one another as Christ has welcomed or accepted you for the glory of God. Now, like last week, we have a historical situation between two apostles, and we think, what does this have to do with me? I'm not eating with Gentiles. I'm not a Jew. I don't care about kosher laws. I don't live in Antioch. Paul's never going to come confront me to my face. What does this have to do with me? Here's the clear teaching for us today. Your behavior can compromise your commitment and your conviction. You can believe the gospel. You can understand the gospel. You can even defend the gospel, but you can live in ways that betray the gospel. You understand what I'm saying? You can have have all the great theology about the gospel, but when it comes to the way that you live your life, you're sending a different message. The practical outworking of your life can betray your confession. You can compromise your convictions. You can give in to peer pressure. Now let me give you some specific examples of how this may play out as a Christian. Okay. Hopefully, none of these things characterize you this morning. I hope they don't. But I know my heart And I know that I'm prone to some of these as well. So when I'm listing these things, I'm not here pointing fingers at anybody. I'm pointing the finger back at myself saying, all of us as Christians struggle with these areas when it comes to peer pressure, when it comes to accepting others, when it comes to welcoming others, when it comes to to fearing man. So let's talk about some of these that are very, very practical. Example number one, racism. Racism is sinful, point point blank. Peter is somewhat acting like a racist. He's basically saying the non-Jews, the Gentiles, they are inferior. Now, he wouldn't come right out and say it because he'd already worked through all the theology, but by the way he was acting, he was sending the message that they were inferior. Now, I need to be very careful here because the way our media plays people against people it almost makes it sound like if you, if you disagree with anybody, you're a racist, okay? So I'm not, I think some people play the racist card way too far, and they accuse everybody of being a racist, and, and that's going on in our culture right now, and, and I don't like that. And I don't necessarily see any evidence of, of racism here at Emmanuel. praise the Lord. But I, I can tell you this, throughout church history, it has caused a problem in the church. When people look down upon other ethnicities, other races. Let me just, let me just tell you something. In heaven, around the throne, there's going to be all different types of colors, all different types of races, all tribes, language, ethnicities. Um, so if you have a problem with other races now, you better get over it really quick because in heaven it's not going to matter. We're going to be all together before the throne room of God. And I'm thankful that the gospel breaks down. All types of prejudice. Now, most of us here would say, you know what, I'm not a racist. And and I'm not saying that we are. But I am saying this. Sometimes we have to check our heart to make sure that we don't have some prejudices lying deep in there. Especially when it comes to somebody of a different ethnicity than we are. Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. For you are all one. You're all one in Jesus Christ. Example number two, classism. Now, what is classism? Well, you may be prejudiced against somebody that either has more money than you, or you are prejudiced against somebody that has less money than you. You look down upon somebody that's in a different socioeconomic bracket than you are or, you, or you, you despise other people. Now, again, I don't want to play class warfare. I don't want to do what the media does and say all this type of stuff. But I will say there is a reality in this world that there are differing economic levels. And when we come into the church, all that should fall by the wayside. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic background you're from. It doesn't matter what quote-unquote side of the tracks you're from. What I'm saying is that we should not be looking down upon others either because they're they're better than us or lower than us. I think it can go both ways. This was happening in the book of James. James chapter 2, 1 through 4. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, <coughs> excuse me, comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Racism is out of line with the gospel. Classism is out of line with the gospel. Let me give you another example extreme fundamentalism now what do i mean by extreme fundamentalism there are some churches there are some groups that say we are the only ones we will not fellowship with anybody else we're the only ones that are right we're the only ones that do it we look suspicious on any other denomination we look suspicious on any other church we're going to cloister ourselves up we're the holy huddle we're the only ones that are doing it right in this town And we're not going to fellowship. We're going to look suspicious. We're going to look down upon others that don't have the same things that we have. And it's oftentimes on secondary things like Bible translations and dress and music. It's not anything that are really that important. I am so thankful that every Wednesday I pray with six other pastors. As a matter of fact, this past Wednesday, we sat right down there and we prayed. I can pray with Pastor John at First Baptist. I can pray with Pastor uh, Ben at the Foursquare Church. I pray with Pastor Dale at United Church of Crook. I pray with Pastor Bill at the Nazarene Church. I pray, pray with Pastor Dan at the Brean Church. And we pray with Pastor Roger at the Assembly of God Church. And we pray every week for each other. Do we have differences? Yes. We've had some knockdown, down drag-out discussions on some of those issues. Speaking in tongues, eternal security, you know, polity issues. Do we have strong opinions? Yes. But do we love each other? Yes. And we pray for each other and we encourage each other. And as a matter of fact, in April, we're going to have a joint worship service here at Emmanuel with all the churches coming together. First Baptist is going to do the worship. And so when you are extremely fundamental or sectarian, you wouldn't do something like that you would look suspiciously at the other churches and and you would say, you know what, we're the only ones in town that have it right. I can't pray with somebody else. I can't can't cross the aisle and go minister with somebody else. See, extreme fundamentalism says, I'm going to draw back. I'm going to be suspicious. I'm going to put up barriers because you're not as good as the way we do it. Now, do we all have faults? Yes. Yes. That we come together and we worship and we pray. And there is no competition. There is no turfism. I'm thankful that if somebody, let me just say this. If you come to Emmanuel Baptist Church and you honestly check us out and you, and you listen to the sermons and, and you come to me and say, you know what, Pastor Sean, we've enjoyed our time here, but this is not the church for us. I would love to send you to any one of those other churches in town. And I'm not competitive. And I would say, you know what, this may not be the place for you, but you know what, the Berean may be first baptist may be the nazarene church you know what those are awesome pastors you're going to get fed over there you're going to you're going to hear the gospel over there let me bless you because i'm not worried about the competition and they're not worried about the competition We're, we're not fearing that let me give you one more example moral relativism it goes the other way as well we've been talking about legalism we've been talking about you know racism and, and putting all these barriers up but you know there's another way you can not walk in line with the gospel another way you can you can walk out of alignment with the gospel and that is to say I'm just going to compromise with the culture. I'm just going to accommodate the culture. There's no such thing as moral relativism. I do whatever I feels good. There's no moral absolutes. I'm just going to kind of go with the flow. I'm going to follow the crowd. If the crowd's doing it, I'm going to do it. doesn't matter what my Christian convictions are. doesn't matter what the Bible says. All I need to do is follow my heart because that's going to lead me to the right place. I'm just going to follow where everybody goes. It doesn't really matter what's right or what's wrong. There is no morality. It's what I make it. You see, fear of man, peer pressure goes in all these different directions. Here's the thing about it. Nobody here would say I'm a racist. Nobody here would say I'm a classist. Nobody here would say I'm an extreme fundamentalist. Nobody maybe would say I'm a moral relativist. And you may, that's, I'm not those things. But when it comes down to how you live your life, the choices you make may send another message because you've given into peer pressure. You see, the biblical way, the straight way, the gospel orthodontic way, the orthopedic, the gospel the right way, is to walk in the fear of the Lord, where you don't give into peer pressure because your identity is in Christ, your hope is in Jesus, your desire is to please Him, your desire is to follow his word you want to love the lord your god with your whole heart soul mind and strength and you want to love your neighbor as yourself and so you live a holy life of thankfulness not giving into peer pressure because here's the bottom line peer pressure can sometimes lead you to compromise on the truth of the gospel are you living to please god or please man are you living in the fear of God or are you living in the fear of man? Are you walking in a straight way of the gospel or are you walking in a crooked way of the gospel? Check your heart this morning and ask yourself, is your conduct in line with your convictions? Is your conduct, is the way that you live your life, is it in line with your convictions? If it's not, you're compromising on the gospel, and it's going to send a confusing message. Do you fear God or do you fear man? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. I think to, to hear messages like this because hearts but Lord I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning all of us struggle with peer pressure all of us struggle with fear of others and Lord that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways but fundamentally Lord when we, when we, when we walk in a way that betrays our convictions it's a crooked gospel. It's out of step with the gospel. It's not only a confusing message to the world, but Lord, it also shows that we don't, we don't follow you. So Lord, search our hearts this morning. Help us to see if we have any prejudices, see if we have any fear of man, see if there's any areas of peer pressure that we struggle with, Lord, and I pray that you would root those out of our hearts. That you would get us back on the straight line of the gospel. But Lord, we would not fear man. But, Lord, we would fear you. We would honor you. We would live for your glory. And, Lord, we know we need your strength for this. We can't do this in our own power. We need grace, grace upon grace. We need, we need the superabundance of your grace, Lord. So would you supply us with that, that ever-present fountain of grace that's always available for us because of your, your love? And, Lord, will we leave this place walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Lord, help us to be those kind of people. Help us to be that kind of church for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.